Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for this latest episode of INC Radio. Carl Bimage holding the fort for you, and we haven't got off and gone off to do different things. We haven't got bored so far. We are actually committed to this podcast. Uh, we sort of have to be right now. We've uh, put down the deposit for unlimited uploads. I just want to say a big thank you to anybody who has been contributing to the channel so far be that in terms of YouTube views or donations that have been made to the Patreon page. We do want to try and continue to grow the INC project over the next couple of months. So any sort of donation that you could make will be greatly appreciated. This will go towards improving the mic quality, um, investing in better equipment, better editing equipment, to try and make our videos as good as possible, to try and make the podcast as pleasing on the ear as possible as well. So if you were to go to patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting, any donation that you make will be greatly appreciated. And in return, you can put forward some viewer questions. We'll be doing videos on that one, hopefully over the next couple of months. Um, any ideas as well for INC videos, top fives that you might want to see. Do you want to be, are you a German fan who wants to see the five greatest German fighters? Quick donation here and there, and we will get that onto the YouTube channel for you. Now we do recognise that there are people out there, unfortunately, who have not caught the MMA book yet. But I'm somebody who's quite open-minded. I like to try and broaden my horizons. And I want to speak to people from the world of sport, uh, science, technology, the entertainment fields as well. So we have a segment on this podcast, INC Uncaged, where I will be speaking to some of the best and brightest from those respective fields. And we have got one for you today. My guest today is one of the most prominent YouTube commentators in the world of soccer or football for our English listeners. Big fan of Sunderland Football Club, he's been a long-time friend of mine. I wanted to try and get him on the show for a while and we're happy to get that underway today. So please say a big hello to Mr. Michael Bowers. Michael Bowers, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, when I first started the idea of doing people from outside the world of mixed martial arts to talk to on this channel, you were one of the first people that I was interested to speak to. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I'm, I'm practically useless on the subject, but I appreciate the thought nonetheless. So thank you very much all the same. We are obviously doing this a little bit later than what we ideally would have hoped for. Um, Part of that was obviously we had our own work commitments. I was obviously covering UFC 246, so anybody who's listening, you'll want to know my opinions of that one in the near future. You were doing your own bit of work. You are a pundit for Sunderland Football Club for their, um, I'm tempted to say it's a fan magazine. Yeah, it's a, it's a YouTube channel called SCFC Fan TV, which was started up in the summer. And, and as the title implies, it's basically when we tend to get, react well, I don't personally, but the channel gets reactions from Sunderland fans after each and every game that any of our reporters can get to. And we also have our own um, Sunday panel show called The Sunday Crunch, which, again, as suggested, it's just basically me and three other guys sitting at sit the table and talk about the week with Sunderland. So we did one at the time of recording talking about the victory at MK Dons yesterday. So um, I've got my own personal YouTube channel, which I've started up since, oh, Christ, I can't remember now, uh, 2015, something along those lines. So um, you could say I'm... You could say I'm Part in the YouTube community, but compared to a lot of others, I'm pretty tiny in comparison. 
I have to say one of the great things I've I've followed a couple of your videos and I find with a lot of people who try and make it within the YouTube industry it almost feels as if they they go style over substance they try to use quick editing to quick editing buzzwords all that sort of thing to try and sell yeah. themselves you feel like you're the opposite you let the information do the talking and I think that's quite refreshing to say yeah I mean just as I mean what you pretty much said I mean obviously there are a lot of YouTubers that visually I'm probably not the most exciting on the eye because it's, it's literally me in front of a in front of my phone camera talking for three minutes put it up on YouTube and hope people like it but people seem to like it so first of all that's encouraging straight away but as far as um style of substance goes yeah you're right I think there are a lot of people that tend to put visuals first and um substance second but if you look at the Sunderland YouTuber so I'm just naming a few the Mad Mistake uh, we Philly, Macam FC, Jam Sani, all of them have got more subscribers than me, and that would mainly be because of their visual style. Some of their visuals are absolutely fantastic, and they're all actually very good YouTubers in their own right. But I, I, I suppose that's what kind of makes me a bit different. That literally, it feels very raw. And one of the things I try to do is I try to put my reaction on YouTube straight away after a game whenever I can, because that's one advantage. I always want mine to be the first one out. Because I know that others are gonna, other people are gonna put their videos up later. But because they've got to edit, they've got to chop and change um, clips of videos and everything. That will take up. That's a long process. It will take a long time to do. So that's one adva advantage I'd like to feel I have, so to speak. But thank you again. Um, that's probably one of the ways that I'm different I mean, to a lot of fans, a lot of YouTubers. That's for sure. And it's a massive level of dedication as well when it comes to where uh, Sunderland Football Club because. You're not somebody yeah. who just sits at home and just watches all the highlights. You are somebody who, you go to pretty much every game that you can. Pretty much, yeah. Um, it, it became a point where it, it, I went for the social aspect rather than actually for the football. Because it's one of the things that, you, it's a social event. You, you probably know yourself, you go to UFC or you've got the Newcastle games or whatever games in the past. You go to see friends as well. It's not just about going to see the football. But as, as people know by now with Sunderland, we've slipped from the Premier League into League One, in which is the third tier of English football. For, which we've been there since 2008, 2018. Um, it's been pretty testing. Um, I, I'm putting that mildly without trying to swear, put it that way. There are going to be a lot of people out there that maybe don't really follow football or, or soccer in the way oh, that yeah. um, other people don't. So for anybody who might be new, could you tell them a bit of background about the stories of Sunderland over the past couple of years. Okay, well, first of all, Sunderland obviously is located in Tyne, Sunderland um, Association Football Club is obviously located in Sunderland, Tyne and Weir in the northeast of England. Um, Sunderland in the, in the history um, have won six league major league titles and two FA Cups, if I'm correct, because my history is a bit dodgy. But that's obviously over the last 130 odd years of their existence. We were founded in 1879, I believe, and more recently, We've had two seventh place finishes in what what was now is the Premier League, but was also known as the Premiership under Peter Reid in 1999 and 2000. We've then had our history in the last decade or so, in the last um, two decades, in terms of going up and coming down from the Premier League into the second tier, which is known as the Championship. And um, we've we've kind of been more known for a a yo-yo sort of club, even though I believe we should personally be striving to be better than that. Um, but also recently. We've had some very difficult times because for the last few years, from around 2013 to about 2017, Sunderland became known for sort of finishing 17th out of the 20-team Premier League, and it was one where 
after so many years of just avoiding relegation by the skin of our teeth, we got relegated from the Premier League. Then you think in the second tier in the Championship, we might actually at least not be in a relegation fight, but um, sadly not the case. We thought well, going down once wasn't bad enough, let's go and do it a second time. We ended up having a disastrous season where you would have hoped that we might have tried to bounce back to get promotion. Got relegated again to the third tier of English football for only the second time in our history, actually, um, which gives you some scope of how embarrassing that was. And now, last season, in the 2018-2019 season, we were aiming to get promoted to back to the championship, the second tier, got to the playoff final. So basically, for anyone who doesn't know, we have a, the league we're in has got 24 teams. First and second get promoted automatically. As well. if, you, if you get the most points over the course of the season, top two teams, you go up. Third and sixth form what is known as the playoffs. So a third would play sixth in a playoff semi-final, both legs. So for example, the team that's third would go to the team that's sixth in the first leg, and then the second leg, it's obviously reversed. The team that is third is at home to the team that finishes sixth. Likewise, fourth and fifth have the same structure. And the winners of the two semi-finals meet in a playoff final, and the winner of that game is the third team to get promoted out of the division that we're in. So now we're pretty much, we're in the top six of the third tier at the moment, but it's still, there's obviously, in the football season, it runs from August till May, and specifically when depends on when there's World Cups and European tournaments and involving the national football teams or soccer teams in the summer. So at the moment, we're pretty much two-thirds of the way through the season, so still a way to go. But yeah, that was my modelled attempt to try and give a bit of background. So and, didn't sound very good. And that's something that I feel American sports fans don't really recognise because obviously they they rely on a franchise sort of system. So there is yeah. no promotion, there is no relegation. So they they don't know about the sort of tensions that come with with that. Obviously, I'm myself a Newcastle United fan. We've been relegated a couple of times, promoted yeah. a couple of times. They don't recognise that sort of. The sort of ramifications that come with that no exactly i mean just to give context right in the well i mean i'm sure that people from america will know about the premier league because the premier league's a big global brand it's not just a league anymore it's a it's a massive global brand and business because if you look at the amount of say newcastle for instance are in the premier league so just because you mentioned you're a newcastle fan as an example if newcastle were to get relegated obviously it tends to the drop from the premier league to the second tier which is the, again the championship there's a massive drop in revenue that clubs receive. You get something that is known as parachute payments, which is designed to help clubs who drop out of the Premier League to try and sustain themselves over a three-year period. But it gets them the, in, the income from the parachute payments gets less and less each year, to the point where you obviously can't rely on that anymore. You've got to try and find some way of getting this earned revenue and income from other means. So sometimes clubs that go from the Premier League to the Championship will kind of struggle for that because you, again you're not having as much money coming into it in the Premier League the TV revenue is absolutely ridiculous I read a look I read an interesting statistic at one point where when Sunderland um, got relegated in 2016-17 from the Premiership and um, I think we got more money than than something like Real Madrid or Real Madrid or Atletico Madrid did in that same season which was insane that just really and that we got something near close to a hundred pounds now, at the time, granted, we were in a massive debt, and that pretty much went to try and clear that. However, that just goes to show you how money-grabbing and, how again, how much a global brand the top flight of English football really is. It's known around the world. It's known as a business. Money has money has taken over a large part of the game, and the Premier League, again, is a huge example of that. But that, that's what I mean, promotion. And that's one of the things, promotion relegation, 
especially if you're in the championship going for promotion to the, to the top tier, the money is what people will be thinking about. Would you say that money in football is a beneficial thing? Would you say it's, it's positive to see that? Because I can understand there's some people who think that, who think seeing all these big clubs, it's basically the rich getting richer. A lot of the big top clubs are the ones which have the big Arab billionaires backing them. But at the same time, you look at the quality of English football in the early 90s before that influx of money came in. And I think weighing up the pros and cons, I mean, you look at some of those stadiums, especially sort of around 1989 when what happened with Hillsborough, etc. Some of those qualities of that stadium, they were nice places to be in. And to go from that to seeing these continental international footballers, it has been beneficial on the whole. Yeah, it depends which way you look at it, really, because obviously agents are a huge part of the game now. Agents dictate deals, they dictate sponsorship. I would imagine they have a hand in sponsorships that players get. That Money does determine a lot of what happens in football. But again, the higher up the league that you go to the Premier League, it's, more, it's how more apparent it is. And I think that if you're going to have like you mentioned yourself, like if you look at football pre this millennium, for instance, money obviously would have been a factor. Obviously, as a footballer, if you're playing professional football, you're going to want to get and earn as much money as you possibly can. Of course, it's only natural. You're in your chosen field. You want to try and get whatever money you can make. It's the same thing with clubs themselves. You want to try and make as much money as you can to make yourself be more sustainable for, for the bigger picture in the future. But if you look at, I think, from, I mean, it's easy to say as a fan's perspective, Money, money ruins the game. That's an argument that's used so many times and a sentiment that's used so many times across fans of whatever club it's going to be. So I can kind of understand that. I think that, you, of course, you're going to want to... And like, here's an example. Right? Newcastle and Sunderland are up in the northeast. It's harder to attract. But, yeah, let's give you an example. If Newcastle were competing against Crystal Palace, for example, Crystal Palace are a club that have been in the Premier League, I think, since 2013 and are, in terms of club size, are hugely inferior to Newcastle, in my opinion. However, the advantage they've got is that they're living down in London. Their club's basically in London now, or at least it's on the outskirts or within the perimeters of London. That would give them an advantage over Newcastle if they were trying to go for a continental player or, oh, do you want to come to the northeast or do you want to go to London? Now, to me, thinking idealistically, I don't think it should be like that. I think you should be looking at the club you're signing for as, a, um, as well. It should be just as important a factor as the area that you're going to be living in. So, like, again, so... Why should why should you know if I was looking at it if I, if I removed some of the Newcastle from it completely if I was coming to England and you think well Newcastle historic club one of the biggest clubs in in top flight history one of the you know pedigree stadiums pedigree fan base but Palace have got a few people in the corner who produce drums you know it's kind of, you know obviously Palace aren't going to care about that nor should they but money and you'd have to, Newcastle would have to give more money for a player to persuade them to come here unfortunately because of this geographical location. So it depends which end of the spectrum you look at. I think I can understand, you know, the quality of the players and given the global recognition that the Premier League gives you, it gives them a power to ask for what wages. That's fine. That's not their problem. You want to try and earn as much as you can. But from the other perspective, yeah, I can sort of see how money has is beneficial to a point, but it does also kind of ruin it a bit. You touched, on, you touched on a really good point there, which I was actually going to bring up, which was, I think because of where clubs like Newcastle, Sunderland and Middlesbrough are in in England, yeah. which which arguably maybe isn't the most glamorous place in the world compared to, say, London or Manchester, you only find yourself attracting two kinds of players. One, which are the mercenary players who come in on massive wages 
and don't necessarily have the heart in the right place, mm. but because yeah. they've been paid such a huge wage to entice them to come up here in the first place. And the other one is people who use those clubs as a stepping stone into English football, who just think, hey, I don't really want to play for Newcastle or Sunderland, but if I do go here first off, I can maybe attract a team down south, and that's where I want to be. Yeah, that's, that's, I couldn't have nailed that any better myself, to be honest. That's kind of what some of the attitude is. That's what some of the attitude is going to be among players coming to the region. I mean, just to give an example for someone, um, there was a player called Jack Rodwell. Uh, you, Carl, Carl, you'll know who about this yourself. I do, yes. For, 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 for those, yeah. For me, most unfortunately, I had to watch him play football. But anyway, the point I was going to make was he was. In a club called, he was at a club called Everton. Again, for those who don't know football, Everton are a club that's rivals to Liverpool in Merseyside in Liverpool, England, obviously. And um, they're not as big as Everton. But anyway, the point was he came through Everton's ranks, went to Manchester City, who have obviously recently started rivaling Manchester United for trophies and they're starting to become a dominant force. But then he comes to Sunderland and he was on about 70 grand a week. Now, straight away, we probably would not have been able to get Rodwell in the first place. Had he not, had we not enticed him to that sort of wage, but that gives you an indication. If it was say, again, the club I mentioned before, Crystal Palace or West Ham United in London, would they have to pay that much money to get him, as that as much as that getting to come? Probably not. You know, it's it's it. But you're right though. There's a lot. But like even the couple of times we've we've had to have put up with mercenaries who are here, mainly just for the financial gain. And really, you should, for me as a player, again, I might be thinking idealistically here, and just as a fan. And I appreciate players don't see the game 100% the same way fans do. Is that you should be also have professional pride wherever you're going to be playing. You should want to have the professional pride to go out there and give 100% for the shirt and do best of your career. You don't want to be destroyed. Even if you get regular rich because of it, you don't want to remember someone who don't really want to be remembered as a flop, do you? You want to be going out and remember, you know what, I've had a half decent career here, regardless of where I was at. Or at least you're going to, if I was a, if I was a player going to a club, I'd at least want to make sure I was liked or loved among the majority of the fan base. I wouldn't want to, you know, obviously I'm not going to pretend the money thing isn't, wouldn't be a factor. It'd be the class to get something with that sort of money. But you want to feel like, I want to, I want to feel like I was earning it at the same time. You know, um, but you're right though. And even then, look at again, say if, say if someone from the championship, the second tier comes to Newcastle and does exceptionally well, and then all of a sudden you get your Liverpools, your Man United, your Manchester Cities that are starting to be interested in him. Unfortunately, it's an annoying factor in you've then got to... Uh, that's what I mean. It, do, it does get really irritating because then it means you're just here just to facilitate them um, getting a better move rather than them feeling like they have the desire to play for your club. You started the YouTube channel around uh, 2017. Uh, what was the first made you want to get involved in that sort of field? Um, well, first of all, it was 2015, but it doesn't matter anyway. But either way, no. But anyway, um, the real reason, um, you, people may remember a YouTuber called The True Geordie. Um, and obviously, he's a massive YouTuber now. He's gone on to do exceptionally well for himself. I don't watch his content so much anymore, but I remember, I loved it when his was raw Newcastle reviews. I thought, one, I thought they were quite hilarious to watch when Newcastle lost the game. But also, <laughs> thought, yeah, but I'm not going to lie, he did actually seem very intelligent and very knowledgeable on what he was talking about, I thought. And he had the narrative of, I can't remember which game it was, but Newcastle had lost the game quite heavily. And he made the argument that Newcastle were there under their current owner, Mike Ashley, just to stagnate in the Premier League and the fans deserved so much better. And I agreed with him. 
as, as much as I, you know, I might begrudgingly have to say, they do deserve better. They shouldn't be just stagnating around the press just to make up numbers in the top flight. Um, I do think that when I watched it, I was actually inspired to do something about that myself because at that time, Sunderland were pretty much doing the same thing. We were there to make up the numbers in the Premier League and that narrative was not being spun about Sunderland as much as I thought it should have been. Because I still believe Sunderland are a huge club and one that shouldn't, first of all, definitely shouldn't be in the third tier. And secondly, if you're going to be in the second tier, we should be expecting to be in the top two of the second tier and going for promotion, really. So my point was I felt Sunderland were constantly underachieving all the time, but nobody on YouTube was saying it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this a go and see what happens. And it took quite a few years, but I've started to grow up to the point where I'm, I think I'm at 1,260 subscribers, which again, compared to, say, what the true Jolly has now, it's, it's, it's a small smidgen, it's a tiny, minuscule portion of what you've got. But, so you could thank someone for, or you could thank someone for being so rubbish on the field that I've actually got a half-decent following. But, um, you know, um, that's kind of what inspired me to do it. And obviously... The more that we fell down the tier, the more views I probably would have got because the more I would have been annoyed. I've always said that the people who care the most are the most critical. And I think yeah. when you are a football fan, because I mean, I, as a Newcastle fan myself, I could be the first person to criticise a player's performance. I'm very vocal on my dislike of Mike Ashley, which I might go into in a bit more detail. Um, I've always, I always love that with football fans. I, I, there, actually, I say that I love that and hate that about football fans that they can care so much but then you get some people who maybe take it a bit too far which can be quite off-putting just going back yeah. to the no go on go on just going back to the true Geordie though the, the I have to say if you do know the true Geordie I do recommend you check him out very intelligent guy very passionate as well and he's made himself an entire living out of this the clip that really won me over in regards to the true Geordie was he did this piece when the whole Adam Johnson saga broke out. And normally, the true Geordie can be quite over the top. He can F and blind his way. And obviously, that works for the YouTube views. He played that quite serious. And I think he... It made me realise just how much more intelligent he is than people give him credit for. As a Sunderland fan, where did you stand on the whole Adam Johnson thing? Because that was a real contentious issue. I know a lot of Newcastle fans that were very critical of Sunderland Football Club for standing beside him. As a Sunderland fan yourself, where did you personally land? Um, oh, well, it's not a light subject, is it? Okay, um, first and foremost, what Adam Johnson did was horrendous. It was, it was, I mean, obviously in terms of crimes, it's not the worst, of, well, okay, actually probably could argue it'd be the worst, worst. It's not like killing somebody, but it is still, it's not good. You can't justify what he did. I mean, first of all, it was illegal anyway, hence he got sent to prison. But it was also, for me, immoral in the sense that he had a, he had a partner and he had a child. So, you know, he basically threw them away for the sake of a 15-year-old girl, who, by the way, herself won't be feeling too great about this. But um, as a fan, I didn't get the criticism of some of fans um, cheering Adam Johnson when we did not know at the time that he'd actually been proven guilty. And the message that would have come out from the club is oh, well, we're sticking by him, so therefore he must be innocent. That was the impression I got. They must have had, they must have had something to believe that he was innocent, otherwise they wouldn't be playing him. Now, once it came out that he was guilty, the club rightly terminated his contract. We, didn't, we shouldn't have had anything to do with him whatsoever. And really, the only reason Adam Johnson probably, said, probably claimed to the club he was innocent was so that he could keep picking up his wages in the meantime between at the time of his arrest and the time of his conviction. 
But if the club, I mean, well, obviously people know that we have a CEO called Margaret Byrne who's no longer at the club, thankfully. But she did have information about Adam Johnson that was wrongly kept into the kept out of the spotlight from the club, and therefore I, I can't defend that. I can't defend the way that I think overall the situation was extremely poorly handled by the club. And for those, and for those that did know about it but didn't say anything, you know that this is that that's a legal issue you're dealing with there. That's the fact that you're dealing with someone who was under who was sexually harassed, basically legally probably by a by a by a footballer that was that is also whenever he plays is in is in close proximity to a bunch of children who at the time would have looked up to him. So not only is it legally wrong, it's also quite immoral in almost every sense of the word. But you know, yeah, just to sort of finish it off, I, I think that was extremely poorly handled. I can't defend anything the club did in regard to Adam Johnson. And I think, I think what, as as an outsider looking in, I think what knocked me a little bit was that I understand innocent until proven guilty, and I think we should all stand by that when it comes to the world of um, sport, politics, anything like that. But I felt that some of the treatment that the girl herself got from the Sunderland fans it was disgusting, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, there's the you know like, I mean you know. I mean, obviously, if it had come up that she'd been lying to try and further herself, because unfortunately there are people who do that when it comes to issues such as rape or anything regarding, like, grievous bodily harm or harassment or anything, there are people that unfortunately will be the boy or girl who cried wolf just to get attention. But when it becomes apparent that she wasn't doing that, you can't treat her like that. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And as much as the time Adam Johnson was seen as a, as a pretty important player for someone, ultimately... I'd rather he'd have left and we got relegated than stayed up just through playing someone we shouldn't have done. Because, you know, but the bigger issue is that, you know, she, she was only, what, 15 at the time? Was it 14, 15 or whatever it was at the time? But either way, that couldn't have made, that would have made her life living hell pretty much. Because everybody at her school would have probably known about it. Everybody and everyone, you know, she, you know it wouldn't shock me in the slightest if she was receiving death threats from some Sunderland fans. But it, I think the majority... Would have been quite. I'd like to think the majority would have been quite good about the situation regarding her own, um, her own um, circumstances. But unfortunately, you get a minority of people that are absolutely idiotic and shouldn't even be classed as fans. So yeah, I agree with you. I think the treat some of the treatment she got was ridiculous. No need for it whatsoever. I often find that when it comes to sport, that there is this real sort of moral con moral quandary. If I can get my words out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, Newcastle United themselves have had that. Obviously, we've had players like Joey Barton, Lee Boyer, Jonathan Woodgate, who played for the club. But even in my field, mixed martial arts, you look at some of the issues that some fighters have had behind the scenes. You look at what Conor McGregor's been doing, assault allegations, all that sort of thing. Uh, John Jones failed drug tests, hit and run incidents. It's it's so awkward because you want to judge the athlete based on their performances as an athlete. But it's sometimes that can be really hard to do when you have so many personal issues entering the fall. Yeah, and even with this just being personal, these personal issues will be quite serious personal issues as well. So it's, I, I agree with you. It's it, it's it's a very, it's a very hard thing to do to try and separate what happens in your field and what happens outside of it. Because to some extent, you can argue they should be two separate things altogether. But when it's something, probably when it's something that is, well, yeah. I used to do sports journalism at Sunderland Uni, and actually there's a very good term here. If it's in the public interest, something that's, you know, obviously the Adam Johnson case or whatever's happened in any other sport, any other field or sport that, you know, 
the public have a right to know about, it's still difficult to then separate that from your mind when judging them as an individual. A good example in football, for instance, is Chad Evans, which has been a widely documented case. Now, when I watch, I'm sure then in the case of Fleetwood Town, who currently occupy the same league as Sunderland, how would, how, for example, Carl, how do you feel when you watch Chad Evans play? Well, I was actually going to bring that up because with Chad Evans, I actually I play a game called Football Manager, and I think I was managing uh, Burton Albion, like a, a League One team around that sort of time. And I'd identified that Chad Evans would have been a good fit for that club. And even though it was a computer game, I still had this sort of moral issue over whether or not I should actually sign him for the club. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, there's all, I mean, obviously Chad Evans has since been, well, since officially been found not guilty, since been re, re-trialed since coming out of prison. But it, it, it's impossible to separate these things from your mind. Even if, when I look at highlights of Chad Evans when he plays for Fleetwood, for instance, I, even though what's happened's happened, I still can't separate that to some extent out of my head. And there are and there are going to be people, unfortunately, who will not be able to do that. No, even if he's been found completely innocent, because that whole saga will be fresh in the mind. It's been it was widely documented. So again, as hard as it is, I agree. I think sometimes I agree with you in principle that you should judge the athlete as an athlete and look at what they're doing in their respective field and if they're doing well for their respective field. But unfortunately, in the in the unfortunately in the world that we live in. Especially in one where social media exists and you're constantly in this bubble, in this cycle 24-7, it's really difficult to separate it from those type of things. Especially, again, if it's something that's very seriously in the public interest, to say the least. On that subject of social media, it brings me on to one of my next points, where you, one of your videos really went viral just a couple of months ago, where... Yes. I think I, it, I think it was after the um, I think it was after Sunderland had lost against Gillingham, and you yeah. you did this very passionate video. You were very critical of the team's performance, and of course Newcastle and Sunderland have this big rivalry. Yeah, a lot of the Newcastle fans got a hold of that video, and you sort of went viral. How did you personally handle that? Well, that's given me more recognition. So first and foremost, thank you very much. <laughs> um, I think to be fair, one of the things I did, I, I still believe that. I stand by a lot of what I said in that video at the time, but I do think one issue I had mentioned that I should have really emphasised better was that I'd made the point that Newcastle could draw against Man City while we lose to Gillingham. And on the surface from from Newcastle fans, I can see how that would be funny, to be fair. Um, My point was going to be that at the time, I didn't feel Sunderland were putting in 110% because I would like to think that Sunderland should have better players than Gillingham. Let's be bluntly honest here. Uh, We should have better players than most of the teams that we're competing against. But we have the manager. We have a manager called Phil Parkinson, who's been known at Bradford, at Bolton Wanderers, um, and obviously, so he's used to working in worse circumstances than what he has at Sunderland. But he basically went into a game. Me, I watched us go into that game defending for a draw first and foremost, and we didn't even get a draw. And for me, watching, watching, when I look at it, look at it's like I'll give you this. It's like. For any Newcastle fans that might be listening to this, it's like, say, if Newcastle in the championship season were going to Barnsley for a nil-nil draw and you end up getting beat, how would they react to that? That's pretty much the best way I can come up with describing it. But my point was going to be, Newcastle at the time, I think were on a decent run of form. They'd drawn against Man City, they'd won away at Sheffield United, a place where Arsenal and Man United got beat at, if I'm not... No, sorry, Arsenal and Man United didn't win at. Liverpool only just won at. And they beat Southampton, which was a crucial six, crucial three points for them. So my point was, and they probably got all the points out of those games through sheer will, effort, heart, determination, desire, all the cliches you can think of. Man City, the best example. 
and I watched that game. Newcastle fully deserved the draw against Man City because they put so much effort and energy into that game, whereas I felt some of them weren't doing that. And and granted, yeah, I am appreciative of the fact that that, that has probably got me more recognition. Um, it's got me probably, you know, I'm not surprised to an extent it went viral in the sense that I've mentioned Newcastle in there, but, you know, uh, it doesn't really bother me. I've, a lot of the comments that I've looked on on Facebook and Twitter are pretty much what I expected. To be honest, I expected worse comments. So part of me, I just pretty much laughed it off, to be honest. But I can see how Newcastle fans would have found me ranting funny. I find that sometimes as well. I obviously, I do uh, YouTube videos, especially when I do the preview shows. Yeah. You can get surprised by how vicious some of the criticism can be. I mean, I've been told to throw myself in front of a bus before, which... I mean, I keep some of the more funny ones. I mean, I was... what is, I think somebody described me once as a BG twat, which <laughs> just what? makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> oh, my God. I'll tell you what, no. So sometimes you get some comments that are just... that criticise you. Not even, it's not even constructive criticism. It's just, uh, it's just critical for the sake of being critical. And you just look at it and you just think, they're so hilarious that it's 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 they're so ridiculous. It's hilarious to look at. You just think, wow, that what made you think that that was an appropriate comment to make? And half the time, it's not even relevant to anything you're talking about. Totally agree. And I mean, to an extent, I think some of the criticisms help. I think one of the early videos I did on my YouTube channel was. I did take maybe a wrong approach, so I have tried to avoid that uh, for a couple of my later entries. But the way I look at it when it comes to social media is, at least I'm being brave enough to actually put my opinion out there. Instead of somebody yeah. who has, what, one subscriber, zero videos, and seems quite happy to just pass comment and criticise others. Oh yeah, I've had issues on social media before where some people have had a go at me. And there's this one person in particular who um, who kind of um, had a go at me for, for sort of talking about my, what I felt on my mental health issues. And I don't have it as badly as a lot of other people do because it's quite a it's quite a serious issue. But he's used pictures of me and have poking fun at me appearance a few times. And I thought, well, and by the way, this person himself, his own Twitter handle, his own Twitter picture is a picture of his dog. Is it a I'm nice dog? Of, you know, so that's an example of. Um, or even in, in a general sense, if people have a go at your appearance or go at whatever it is, but they don't do those things themselves, like, well, you don't really want to talk there. You can't really go out and say, like, oh, you're, you're this and this and this and this. Yeah, but at least I'm putting my face on camera. At least I'm doing this, this and this and this. What are you doing about it? It might have been, been, been a very bunny dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Who knows? Um, no, don't get me wrong. It, it, constructive criticism is more than fair enough. I think I think sometimes people need to realise the way they say things can be such a huge thing. If you're saying it in a way that's like nice enough, but also just being just as just as a point, just to maybe think about improving on, and such and such. It, some people really underestimate the way you say things can make such a difference to someone's morale or someone's self-esteem. So just just, just, just people just need to remember that. Sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. What would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned from doing these videos? Oh, you put a deep philosophical question onto me there. Um, biggest lesson. I would say biggest lesson is to remember that not everybody is going to like what you say. And as long as people are respectful of me, even if they don't agree with what I'm saying, fine. Got no issue with that whatsoever. Um... I think, I think, so say if anyone was wanting to start up a YouTube channel, go for it. Even if it's 
some some mug like me who puts his face on a camera. It's I've somehow got over a thousand subscribers. So if I can do that, then anyone can do that. Um, that's the point I would make. Just remember, not everyone's going to like you, but if you just if you're passionate about what you're talking about, that passion will come through. It'll come through on your videos, whatever the perceived quality might be. People appreciate and what like watching people who are passionate about their chosen subject. Likewise, you will be with mixed martial arts in UFC. You know that passion will shine through in your material. It will be. What was it about football, especially, that attracted you so much? Very good question. Because I used to not be into football. I've only been into it since the turn of um, since the turn of the last decade, which was two thousand and eleven. Um, I think it was the whole. Pa I think I watched the Sunderland game on TV. And I realized how passionate everybody was getting. And I think I just realized, you, you, it's the thrill when your team's running forward, the thrill when your team scores a goal. In fact, in societal expectations, football is probably one of the few occasions where you can grab a total stranger and hug them ridiculously. That is, you know, if you did that across the street, you'd be looked at as a mental, mental idiot. But, you know, in terms of football, I think it's, I think it's the whole community, community togetherness of it all. And it's the whole, the way that you could, you have a shared passion with so many other people, and I think in a way it makes me forget about life for a bit, and, and not just not just going for the actual sport, but going for the thrill of going with your mates, the thrill of you know breaking out of a routine in your life for a bit. As cliche as that sounds, I think it would probably be the passion of it all. I think the passion I felt from other fans rubbed off onto me. That's the best way to describe it. I actually had a similar situation where um, I think I was at a pub when the Anthony Joshua uh, Vladimir Klitschko fight was happening and mm. when AJ got that knockout I remember this big burly bloke we're talking like 20 stone proper full on muscle just full on bear hugging me and I just love that sort of joy that comes with sport I mean yeah. I was broken obviously because it just squeezed me so hard but it was great to be caught in that moment but it's one of the few occasions where you don't mind it as much because you know that it's it's not done malicious in a malicious way. It's done out of pure elation and joy. Totally agree. What would you say is your best moment as a as a football fan? Best moment. Right. Um, best moment. I haven't really got many to choose from here. Uh, best moment. Um, if you're talking. Oh. See, if I, if I had to try and take Sunderland out of this, probably one of the best moments that I can remember um, was when, do you remember that infant, that famous Aguero moment when City yes. snapped the away from Manchester United? Now, obviously, I'd only just recently got into football then, but um, I knew that Man United were the dominant force before then in terms of winning the Premier League. And to see City, because they were 2-1 down, remember, they were 2-1 down going into injury time against Queen's Park Rangers, who you know what they expected to be because it stayed up, but Man United had played Sunderland actually and won one nil, and they thought the title was there. And in some ways, this was great. Man City, I always get chills every time I watch it. City equalised, I think, the very start of injury time, about five minutes, and then with almost the last kick of the game, Sergio Aguero, who's one of the best strikers in the world at the minute, who plays for Man City, scored the winner to win the league and snatch it on goal difference away from Manchester United. I think it's probably just going to be one of those moments that football will never forget about. It's one of those iconic moments, especially when you look at Martin Tyler's Aguero commentary and, and that particular track. As a Sunderland fan, probably when we got to the League Cup final in 2014 when we beat Manchester United on penalties, which I may point out was, was probably the worst shootout I've ever seen in my life. But we won, but nevertheless, we won it. 
and it was that I was I was that it was that I was devastated we didn't win it that season. Even though we played Manchester City in the final, I didn't expect to win it. Nobody expected us to win it, but we had hope. By God, we had hope. Wasn't there like six or seven penalty misses in that shootout? Yeah, something like that. We <laughs> won two one on penalties. They missed like well, we missed obviously three, then they missed four of them. It was it was comically bad how how shit it was. Like we half of us most of the players couldn't even get a shot on target. I'm sure there was at least three or four of them that were blazed over the bar. You touched on it there when you talked about uh, Man City winning the title. I think that's one thing that's maybe lacking when it comes to American sports is that what made that so much special is that sometimes you can have a Premier League season which is just a complete whitewash. Like yeah. A team can have their season wrapped up around about April time. So I think when you have that natural situation where a title goes down to the final game of the season. Yet, I think with American sports, they always seem to have this big finale, this big centrepiece. You look at stuff like the Super Bowl or the World Series or the Stanley Cup. They need to have that sort of Game 7 moment all the time. So when you have a Man City versus a Man United situation where it does genuinely go down to the last minute of the last game of the season with no sort of contrivance or artificialness around it. That's what made it, it even more better. Well, exactly, and it was it was pure raw, wasn't it? That was what made it, and especially because that was Man City's first title. I mean, obviously, I know Man City will have won titles in their history, but I mean, that, that was their first Premier League title. That was the first time where this is when Man City started to show themselves as they're not just Man United's neighbours, they're a force to be reckoned with in their own right. And what made that's what made it great. The fact that, and again, it literally, because I don't think we're going to ever see a title race as more compelling as that. Uh, I know last season's against Liverpool, between Liverpool and City was close, but it wasn't. It wasn't a goal difference literally decides it, or a one goal could decide it. That was one of the things that made it feel so memorable, and it was one again the way it happened, the way that everything just. I mean, Man United fans will want to forget it, I'm sure, but um, that was one of the things that made it so good. It was pure raw emotion. There was no. There obviously would have been a big stage set up for it. Of course, it would be. It's Man United, Man City. It's the, it's the title going out on the last day. But it felt about those two specifically. It felt like a touch of destiny about it, that one of these two was going to be champions. But again, the way it happened was just what made it so memorable. What could American sports learn from British or European sports? Um, well, first of all, if you're talking like the MLS, for example, the Major League Soccer, have promotion and relegation. That surely is going to make it a lot more interesting as a spectacle to watch because then it means that you know, say, say if you're in the MLS and you're the bottom club in the seeded league or wherever, I don't, I can't quite know how it works. I know you've got, I think it's seeded leagues and non-seeded leagues or something along those lines. But um, correct me if I'm wrong, because I probably am. But if if you had promotion and relegation, it instantly gives people the bottom end of the top tier or the top of another tier something to play for. It instantly increases the tension. And it, it just makes it a lot better to watch. Imagine if the Premier League didn't have relegation, for instance. I'm sure that fans of that of, in, in the, of clubs in the Premier League would be, certainly down the bottom end, would be happy about that. But as a spectacle, it would be terrible because then there's no consequence to poor performances. There's no urgency. There's not as much urgency to go and win games. That's one of the things I would recommend. And I think that get a, a best advice is just get a brand that gets you multi multi millions of millions of dollars in a season and then maybe you might end up increasing your increasing the viewership of whatever whatever field it would be. And I think as well another issue is that I think with American sport it's all about marketability. Uh, because they will choose franchises for specific regions. 
So they'll say, hey, we've got a lot of NFL fans which are over in New York, so we're going to give them another team, and the same with Florida, etc. And you're going to miss out on those sort of fairy tale stories that come with football when you have a smaller club, someone like like a Bournemouth, for example, who can rise up the leagues from fourth tier to be playing in the Premier League. You wouldn't get those sort of stories in American sport. Well, exactly, and that's just one of the things that it makes it. And also, mention it's also inspiring to a lot of other clubs. Bournemouth, I mean, I know Bournemouth are struggling at the moment, but they're, they, the fact that they're in the Premier League itself, I'm sure a lot of their fans would admit, is miraculous in itself. So the fact they've risen that far, fourth tier to top tier, straight away gives clubs in league in the lower leagues, like League One, League Two, hope. Well, hang on, that can be us. Why not? That being said, they did have a little bit of Russian money behind them, so it's a bit of an asterisk. Money does help. <laughs> money always helps. Just going back to the MLS, though, that is such a better league than it once was. It was once seen as almost a retirement home for a lot of veteran players, but you look at some of the South American players who are applying their trade in the MLS, it's a much better league than it once was. Well, straight away, then, that means straight away that's a good thing, then, because it means that they're getting in getting themselves in the right direction and they're attracting some decent quality players and not just people who probably might be perceived to have been there for a big paycheck to the end of their career it's good to see that and that happens the mls is going to be taken more seriously isn't it there was always that story i remember there was a there was a promo for the 1994 world cup which was one which was held in the u.s and they asked a man who they thought diego maradona was and he said he was a singer (laughs) (laughs) oh god imagine that would have gone down well yeah, we don't really want to talk about what Diego Maradona did in that World Cup, do we? No, let's just uh, forget that happened and move on. And it was a good tournament from all accounts as well. Um, apparently a lot of people say that the the games were fantastic. Um, obviously you had Bulgaria, who were the big surprise package of that competition. So I think that World Cup especially did do a lot to help uh, soccer in, uh, in the US. Yeah, well... If you're going to have big profile things like that happen, of course it's going to naturally raise the profile of the tournament, isn't it? It's going to naturally raise the profile of the MLS. And again, it means better quality people are going to want to come. Better quality players are going to want to come and apply their trade there that aren't just mid-30s on the last kick of their careers. It'll be seen as a genuine prospect to be a part of. It is strange with the Americans, though, that for them, they see soccer as almost a woman's sport. I mean, if you look at the profile of the women's national team compared to the males... You'd struggle to name like a prominent American player, yet you've got people like Megan Rapinoe, for example, who's one of yeah. the biggest stars in American sport right now. Well, exactly. And, well, you know, obviously the USA did well at the Women's World Cup last year, didn't they? Did they go on to win it? They had to win the whole thing. They won it. Oh, I thought they did. I thought they did, yeah. Well, there you go. That just mm, that shows maybe in itself that maybe there's still a bridge to gap between, you know, American soccer soccer teams and then leagues around them. And, because soccer, like you said, is soccer the predominant sport in the USA? I'm guessing it probably isn't. It's it's the NFL first. I would say it's the NFL, uh, baseball, hockey, NASCAR still quite big. So with soccer for the men's side, you're looking at about fifth or sixth place. Well, then there you go. That, that, that probably tells its own story about how if it's not going to be seen as the main priority, it's going to be harder to try and raise your profile, so to speak. The growth of women's football has been substantial. That's one thing that's really surprised me. I'm hoping to uh, get Alex Saunders, who's the captain of the Spennymoor Town ladies team in. I'm hoping to try and get an interview with her. But And that's one thing I really want to talk to her about, is that in the space of seven or eight years, women's football has gone from a novelty to being 
having quite a prominent place in in British media. I mean, the England USA semi final that's something like twelve million viewers on BBC yeah. One. And that's probably going to be one of the biggest ever viewership, if not the biggest ever, for women's football. It's 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 one that. What's great about women's football improving is that it gives girls the inspiration to first of all fall in love with football, and secondly, they want and pursue it as a genuine career. Now, obviously, we know that the women's—I mean, the whole issue about money for the men's and the women's teams is a whole separate debate. But if you were to look at it, it gives people genuine hope that they can go make a career out of themselves. Just for instance, I covered Sunderland ladies when I was at Sunderland University a few years ago, and and bear in mind this was a long—this was about six, seven years ago. This it was quite a way away, but they had some pretty good players then. And people underestimate just how much some women actually some very, very good technical footballers. Obviously, in comparison to the men's league. They're not going to get as much profile, as much pumped into academies or pumped into resources and facilities to help produce better players. But it's better than what it was. It's getting a lot more profile and attention than what it was. And again, it's great to see that it's good for young girls to be inspired to get into football one way or another. And it's also good for boys as well to sort of say, look, girls can be part of football as well. It's not just a men's game. Because I, I can see a lot of comparisons to my old field of mixed martial arts because... There were women's fights around sort of 2002, 2003, but they were treated very much as gimmick fights, and most of the women's matches were in sort of high school gyms. But now, you look at the UFC, and you've got men's and women's fights on the same card, and sometimes the women's fights can be absolutely amazing. I mean, obviously, 246 just happened, and there was a match between Roxanne Modafferi and Macy Barber, and Roxanne put on an absolute fantastic performance in that fight, and... I was watching that card with a couple of people and they were more invested in that match than they were arguably any of the others. What does that say then? It's great to... Uh, that's good to see then. Again, it's the same thing again with soccer and again with mixed martial arts. It's good to see that again people are going to be inspired and it's going to... That's one way that you're going to get the... Well, I imagine mixed martial arts. I don't know what the um, perception's like there, but soccer, for instance, is, is mostly invested in by males. It's yes. mostly... There's very... There's, not as, there's nowhere near as many female fans. And one of the things that to have a female mixed martial arts fighter put in that level of performance and get that much investment in it is going to increase the profile of, of the fact that women can participate in the sports as well. And again, that's a societal thing. That's a societal thing that in across all sports that women are starting to be taking a more active role in it because they're more encouraged to now or inspired to do so, whereas they arguably weren't before. I'd arguably say one of the, one of the things that sells women's mixed martial arts is... And I mean this in the nicest way, it's more raw. I think the men have obviously, they've had like 25, 30 years of this sport going on. And you've got fighters who fight pretty much the same way. Because the women's side of it is maybe not as developed, you still get a lot of grappling specialists, fighting striking specialists. So it's a bit more old school in that regard. Mm -hmm. But also, maybe the tactical side of it, it maybe isn't as strong. So you'll just have girls who will get into a full-on slugfest which is maybe a bit, bit more old school which appeals to that sort of casual viewer as it were yeah well in, I'll ask you a question in turn then do you think that it's because the women have had to work harder to prove themselves to get themselves more noticed I think so I think uh, because the one that really sticks out for me obviously like Gina Carano had done her bit around sort of 2008 2009 but for the longest time Dana White said women will never fight in the UFC he just had no interest in that side of the sport then Ronda Rousey comes along, absolutely steamrolls through everyone, 
very media friendly girl as well very attractive outspoken personality um and then the ufc took a chance and before you know it ronda's one of the biggest names in the sport there you go but that's it that that straight away then it means that because that, that's because that's one of the things that i've noticed um sometimes that women have had to work harder to prove themselves and and it shouldn't be like that it should be they should be given as equal chance as men should but unfortunately that's not the society that we live in so again in mixed martial arts women fighters would have to have worked harder to prove themselves and that's probably one of the reasons that like you said that the fights themselves would be so raw because they're that they're probably that determined and that this is probably the fight of their lives for them it's probably something that you know for me to be taken seriously on the map i have got to perform well here so the more that the more that get and, and obviously the more attention it gets in turn the more investment will be put into that side of the sport which then in turn will increase the quality of that side of the sport and get more recognition Totally agree. Totally agree. I've I've always been a big advocate of uh, women's MMA, um, and as mentioned before, I think we're starting to see it get more refined. I mean, if you look at someone like Valentina Shevchenko, very technical fighter, like multiple-time Muay Thai champion, which maybe is less of, less of that sort of brawling style that you maybe got from the earlier years. So we're starting to see the technicians come through. It, it's it's all like. I almost sort of see women's MMA sort of 10 years behind UFC and we've sort of gone from the Hoist Gracie sort of like Ronda era and now we're entering the technicians. So do you think that will probably change the more that we go on? I think so. I think because what you're going to... It used to be that women fighters were either boxers who started to learn how to wrestle or wrestlers who started to learn how to strike. Still does to a couple of extent. What we're starting to see now is we're starting to see women who are training as mixed martial artists, not people transitioning from one sport to another. Well, good, because then that means if you're going to get people that are training in a specific field, especially for women, that shows that the profile is increasing. I still enjoy the specialists, whether that's male or female, though. I mean, when you have somebody who is so good in one field that they can just fall back on that. I mean, someone like Damian Meyer, for example, for the men. I mean, Meyer, yes, he's got himself in some stand-up fights before but his bread and butter is his jiu-jitsu i mean i've seen damian meyer win fights where he doesn't even throw a single strike because his grappling is that good that he can just fall back on it so it is good to see those fighters still come there or on the opposite side of it stephen thompson pretty much has zero grappling but he's such a good karate striker he can get away with it yeah well that's what I mean. It is good to see sometimes because sometimes there'll be people who try to do specialize in more than one thing or say, oh, look at this, I'm good at everything. But if you've got someone who's that good at one thing, they'll get noticed for it and they'll get respect for it. Totally agree. Totally agree. Of course, when it comes to mixed martial arts as well, we're going to ask this to every single person who we speak to on this show. Obviously, we want to try and keep it as an MMA conscious channel. I do enjoy when we talk about football and other factors, but... We've got to appeal to our target audience. We do this with every single guest that we have on the show. Uh, we have got a main event coming up this weekend. We're going to be in Rowley, North Carolina. And our main event will be a heavyweight match between Curtis Blades and Junior Dos Santos. Michael, I know you're not the biggest expert when it comes to this. Simply based off the names, who's going to win this one? Who are the names again? Curtis Blades and Junior Dos Santos. Okay. Bearing in mind, I have no Curtis Blades and Junior Um... I'm going to go Curtis Blade just because I like the name, but don't, but people don't take my prediction seriously because I have no knowledge on this. So I'm just going to go Curtis Blade. 
I'm favouring Curtis Blades for this one as well. He's a fantastic wrestler. And I think as popular as Junior Dos Santos is, I, I dare I say he's on the later end of his career. And I don't see him being able to handle uh, Blades' grappling for a potential 25-minute fight. So I'm going to say Blades' uh, one-sided decision, maybe a 50-45. Fair enough. There. Well, obviously, when the later you get in your career, it's harder to handle people who have got more youth in their youth within them. You'd have to have a really good diet. You have to have a really good fitness and diet regime to maintain yourself at such an older age, in professional terms, anyway. I will say though, the heavyweight division is maybe the one where you can get away with that. I mean, you look at someone like Randy Couture. Randy Couture was heavyweight champion at forty-three years old. What's the normal retirement age in this particular in martial arts, mixed martial arts? Well, Mark, well, MMA is an interesting one. I don't necessarily think it's to do with the fighter's actual age. It's to do with how many miles they've had on the clock, how many fights they've had, when did they start fighting. Because you can have a guy like Henan Burrell, for example, who is 34 years old and is seen as pretty much shot as a fighter because he started when he was sort of 18, 19. Yet you have a guy... Later on in his career, as Randy Couture has mentioned, Randy started in his mid-30s, so he was able to go to about 47, and he was still fighting at a really good level at 47 as well. Oh, there you go. There. You can definitely tell it's different as soccer, can't you? Um, that's fair enough, then. You know, that was just a question I was genuinely curious about. Unless you are... Oh, God, I can't remember his name. Juventus player. Cristiano Ronaldo? No, no. He used to play for them. Um, oh. Central midfielder. He played for when he was about 30 or 39 years old. Still amazing. Oh, oh, God, you've got me thinking now. Because before you said central midfielder, I was going to go Gingy Buffon, who the goalkeeper is. but uh... Goalkeepers can get away with maybe playing a bit older. Yeah, they can go to about probably 40, maybe at highest mid 40s. Perlo, Perlo. Oh, okay then. Honestly... Even at 38 years old, he was still one of the best ball players that you can come across. Just his distribution was fantastic. Quality remains, I suppose, and he's kept. He must have kept himself in excellent condition to be playing at that age, because that's usually quite. That's quite old for a footballer. I think there's some positions you can get away with that. So maybe I think maybe a defensive-minded player, and obviously goalkeepers as well. You can maybe get. A, you can maybe afford to play to an older age. Mm. Yeah, well, like I said, every skill's different, isn't it? I suppose if you can, again, with MMA, if you can play, if you can continue for a good level up to about 47, um, you, you must be doing something right. And on that cheery note, um, I think that's a good place to end the show as well, Michael. We've got nearly an hour of conversation there. How, can you believe it? I know. And, that, and, that, and that's with me having next to no conversation. <laughs> very much. <laughs> really interesting stuff, though. I'd love to have you back on the show. And obviously, I hope there's a lot of American listeners who may be interested in covering the Premier League. If anybody wants to follow you in particular, what's your sort of social media aspects? Okay. Right. Um, I've got Twitter and Instagram. Well, I've got Facebook, but Facebook I rarely use, to be honest. So um, Instagram, it's Bowers, S-E-F-C, B-F-C, because I used to quite like Blackpool a lot. Um, and then on Twitter, it's at MichaelBowers15, and my YouTube channel is simply called Michael Bowers. And on that cheery note, thank you very much for joining us. This has been INC Radio. My name has been Carl Bainbridge. Michael Bowers has been our guest. 
Please stay tuned for future episodes of the show. We'll hope to bring you some more top-level MMA content, as well as interviews with some of the many colourful, knowledgeable people away from the sport. On that cheery note, thank you very much for joining us. And there we go.